Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis 15, verses 1 to 18. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of, all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and onward and afterward they will come out with great possessions." You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a, smoke, a smoking firepot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it might not uh, feel like it or seem like it, but this is absolutely one of the most astounding passages of the entire Bible. Uh, and on top of that, uh, there was a sermon that I heard preached on this passage years ago that's probably one of the top most three influential sermons uh, of my entire life. Uh, about uh, 10 years ago, Tim Keller, who if you don't know who Tim Keller is, he's the founder of Redeemer, of which we are a part of the network of churches. Um, but he had preached a, a sermon, uh, his own revamped sermon that he had preached something like 25 years before, uh, a sermon called Abraham and the Fire. Uh, those sermons, based on this passage, absolutely transformed me. God used to transform me as a Christian uh, and my understanding of the gospel as well as the way in which I approach the scriptures as a preacher and a teacher, I am not exaggerating this passage. And the sermons that I've heard related to it absolutely changed me. I say all of that, I start there because there is absolutely no way I can teach through this passage 
without Tim and his sermon being very deeply involved. So uh, in the spirit of citing my sources, I'm just letting you know, uh, there will be pepperings of uh, Tim's sermon all throughout this thing. I can't help it. I, I debated whether or not I should just get up here and just read you that manuscript. Um, but I won't do that. But just know if you want to hear Tim preach it, Abraham and the fire, I'm sure you can find it online. But again, what is it about this passage that was so transformative for me? Well, bottom line is this chapter, chapter 15, summarizes the power of the gospel for the individual in a way that is very vivid and unique. Now, if you've been with us, uh, we have been in a series called In the Beginning, uh, which has been a study of the book of Genesis. Uh, this series has really been a, a look at the book of Genesis as the Christian's origin story. This is, if you are a Christian, this is your story. And this story of God's covenant promise here with Abraham is not just a covenant promise and a story about uh, the covenant promise with Abraham, but it's also part of the Christian's story as well. In many ways, this covenant that you read about here in Genesis 15 is our covenant. And so for that reason, we need to fully understand what is taking place with Abraham so that ultimately we can understand what is not only being promised to him, but also what's being promised to us. And so to do that, let's take a look at the story. And we'll take a look at three different stories that are woven into this one story. What we see here is a story of doubt. We see a story of faith. And we also see a story of covenant, all right? Let's look at each of those. So first, a story of doubt. So just to recap where we've been uh, in the narrative so far. Last week, we looked at God calling uh, Abram, who would later be renamed uh, Abraham, uh, called him to leave his country of origin and instead travel to a land that God would lead him to. Uh, in Genesis 12, which is what we looked at last week, we saw that call uh, of Abraham, God's promises made to Abraham, uh, that one day Abraham would become a great nation through his family line. Here in Genesis 15, though, what we see is the, the extent to which God is committed to fulfilling that promise. Now, up until this point, we've We've actually skipped several chapters in the story of Abram. Uh, it's hard to get to it all, but here's what we need to know leading up to uh, chapter 15 is that God has been consistently faithful. He's proven himself faithful to Abram, even when Abram has not been faithful himself. God has remained faithful nonetheless. That is important stepping into chapter 15, and it's important for our understanding of what we call the gospel and why the gospel is good news and why we can see the gospel here in Genesis 15. Because even though God has been faithful to Abraham, right, over and over again, God has been faithful. Look at the interaction that we see between God and Abram, starting in verse 1. God again reminds Abraham, he says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Just pause there for a second. What a wonderful and reassuring statement to hear from God. I mean, I think many of us would love to be able to hear God speak those words to us. I am your shield. I am your protector. I am your great reward. But then Abram's response is interesting, especially considering God's faithfulness to him thus far. Abram in verse 2 says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate will be Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, 
So a servant in my household is to be my heir. In other words, God, you said that you were going to give me a child, and it would be through that line, through my child, that you would establish a nation, yet here I am, waiting for that child that you have not given to me. And so, I guess, the best I can hope for now is that what I possess will go to my servant, Eleazar of Damascus. And I guess that's a fine enough backup plan. It's interesting that after all that God has done, Abram has this doubt. He doesn't actually trust that God's going to do what God said he would do. At the heart of Abram's response is doubt. Abraham doubts that God will continue to be faithful to him going forward, and he's scared, and so he comes up with a bit of his own backup plan in case God fails him. Now, what's striking is God's response. God responds in verse 4 and 5, basically saying, I hear you, but let me remind you again, Abram, you will have an heir, and your heir will have an heir, and that heir will have an heir. There will be so many that you can't even count how many will come after you. They will be as numerous as the stars. Right, this entire interaction is very instructive for us as they are going back and forth because it tells us a couple of things about doubt. First, let's, let's look at a few things. First, for many of us, we probably resonate with Abram's posture at this point. Right? He, he's heard what God has promised. He is pretty clear about what God said he was going to do and what God desires from him. And yet, though those things are clear, right, he's understood them. He doubts God is actually committed to his good. He's actually doubting that God is going to uh, bring him to this place of flourishing. And so as a result, as I said, he works out this backup plan that removes God's promise from the equation. And I wonder how often are we the same when it comes to doubting? How often do we hear things that God has promised? How often are we very clear about the things that God desires from us, but because of our doubt, we think, ah, no, that can't possibly be true. I'll figure out my own backup plan. You know, a great example of this uh, can actually be found in Hebrews 13. Uh, in that chapter, the author is laying out how a Christian ought to live. Um, let me read this. For, I think I put it. Did I put this in the slides? I hope I did. Yes. Bravo to me because I didn't remember to die. Anyway, okay. So Hebrews 13 says this. It says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Verse 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Let me just stop there for a second. So what we're seeing here so far in Hebrews 13 is that we're being told, we're called to love one another. Uh, we're called to welcome the stranger. And if you don't know, in the Old Testament, especially in the way the Old Testament uses that word stranger, it's often uh, referring to the immigrant. 
We are told here that we are to care for those who are in prison or those who are being mistreated and suffering some kind of injustice. We are told here to remain sexually pure and we're told to not love or trust in money. But here's what's interesting. After telling us what we ought to do, the author of Hebrews then shows us why we ought to do these things. He gives us the basis for these commands. And in verse five, this is what it says. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, which is the, the author of Hebrews quoting Deuteronomy 31. That's interesting to me. It's actually fascinating to me. Our obedience to what God has commanded is rooted in the promise that he will not forsake us. I mean, think about what the passage is asking of us. We are told here that if we welcome the stranger, if we welcome the immigrant, right, that God will take care of us. And yet, often, our doubt might not lead us to trust that welcoming the stranger, the immigrant, will be for our good. Instead, we doubt him, and so now we're worried about them taking our jobs or changing our culture. We're called here to care about those in prison as though I myself was in prison. But if I do that, people might not think I'm respectable as a person. You know, we're, we're told here that we are to stand with those who are mistreated or oppressed in some way, as though I am being mistreated or oppressed. And you know, I, I might not though want to acknowledge that there's even an injustice around me because if I do that, it might make me uncomfortable that I'll have to stand with those who maybe in society are viewed as less than. You know, if I, if I believe that God created sex to be for the, the marital relationship between a man and a woman, and that's what purity, sexual purity looks like, my doubt might lead me to say, ah, if I follow that, I might not be satisfied. I might not have what I desire. I might not be able to be who I think I should be. You know, here we're, we're being told that we are to be free from the love of money and being content and to be generous. But if I do that, if I trust God in that way, I might not be able to live the way I want to live. I might not have what I want to have. And it's all mine anyway. I mean, what I find to be fascinating is that so often our disobedience to the very clear things that God commands of us is rooted in a doubt that God is not ultimately for my good. I don't believe he's for my good. Otherwise, I would trust that what he says is good for me. And so often, our doubt leads us to say, God, I can't trust you in that area of my life. I have too many fears about what could happen if you don't come through. So I'm going to create my own plan, my backup plan, much like Abram comes up with his own backup back plan in case God doesn't come through. But here's what I find wonderful. If we're honest with ourselves, that's all of our story. Every single time we disobey God, it's because in some way we have not trusted that he is ultimately for our good. But what I find wonderful is that when God hears these doubts from Abram, he does not respond in a way that I think would actually be quite justified. Meaning, God, the creator, the, the sustainer of the universe, the all-powerful one, very well could have come with anger over the doubts that we see here. He could have said, 
Who do you think you are to question me? I am promising you something. Why would you doubt that I will come through on my promises? And frankly, sometimes God shows up in that way. Um, if you read the book of Job, uh, one of the most terrifying chapters of the Bible is to read um, the end of the book of Job where God essentially shows up that way. But what's fascinating about how God shows up here is he says he comes with gentleness, not an anger, not displaying his bigness. He comes with gentleness to Abram. And he says, don't worry, Abram. I will bless you as I promised God's not angered by his doubts. God can handle the doubts that Abram is bringing. And though there will come a time when we need to lay our doubts aside and turn toward faith, God is gracious and kind and even welcomes our frailty and our questions. It's okay to bring those things to him and trust him with those. It's part of what it means to be able to trust him all the more. And the longer that we follow and trust him, I know this to be true in my own life personally, and I trust that it will continue to be as I walk with the Lord. But the more we realize, the more we walk with him, the more we realize that we really can lay aside some of our doubts because we get accustomed to God gently saying, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so there will come seasons of doubt, and that's okay. We can bring those doubts, and we can hear the gentle word of the Lord saying, I will never leave you. And we can trust that when he commands us to do something, it's for our good. But there also, as I said, comes a point where we do need to begin turning away from those doubts and moving into seasons of faith where we're trusting him, which is also what we see here in this passage. It's also a story of faith. So after God gently reminds Abram of the promise, the next verse is one of the clearest articulations of the gospel message to the individual. Verse 6 says this. It says that Abram believed the Lord, and he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. Now, why is that such an important statement? Well, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 4 uh, explains to us the significance of that one verse, verse 6. What the, the Apostle Paul in chapter 4 of Romans uh, shows us is that if Abram could be justified by works, meaning if he could come before God in right standing based on works, then Abram would have something that he could boast about before God. This is what uh, the Apostle Paul says. I'll just read this for you. The Apostle Paul says, What does Scripture say? It says that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. All right, so what's the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, listen, if you could earn God's favor by living a perfectly moral and obedient life of righteousness— it would be your accomplishment. And whatever salvation and whatever favor is given to you would not be a gift. It would be an obligation that God owed you. You know, just as an example, when you're at work and you get your paycheck at the end of the week, your employer is not doing you a favor or giving you a gift by giving you that money. Your employer owes you. They are obligated to give you that money. That, of course, 
is very different than someone who for no other reason, uh, just out of their generosity, decides to pay off all your debt or give you some huge financial gift. I mean, could you imagine if someone were to just come one day and simply because they love you, give you an entire year's salary? Come on, Jesus, that'd be beautiful and wonderful. That we recognize is not something that's earned, it's a gift. And when we remember what uh, Jesus tells us in Luke 18, right? In Luke 18, Jesus tells us that no one is good, no one is righteous, but God alone. We quickly realize that we too lack righteousness, right? We cannot justify ourselves. We couldn't possibly work hard enough to receive this salvation, this favor before God. But what we see in our passage is that Abram, because of his faith, was counted as righteousness. It was not his righteousness that was counted as righteousness, but rather it's because he believed the faith that he had. As a result of that, he was made righteous. This is the uniqueness of the Christian faith because every other world religion is going to tell you to follow this path obey these rules, engage with these rituals in this particular kind of way. And if you can do all of those things, maybe there's a hope at the other end that you've done enough to merit the favor of God. But that is nothing more. That approach to God is nothing more than an employee demanding their obligated paycheck. I earned this, and so God, you now owe me as a result of everything that I've done. And what I also find really interesting is that there's also a, a, a secular, non-religious version of this as well. Uh, we might not attempt to appease a God, but instead we seek to, to satisfy our own standards of righteousness. You know, for, for example, the, the modern conceptions of identity are very much an attempt to satisfy our own standards of righteousness. We've determined what we ought to be, ought to do. And so we spend a lifetime trying to reach our own standard. And in order to find that fulfillment or that favor, as it were, I do so by attempting to define myself and who I am and what is best for me. And I do so often not caring about what anyone else has to say about my definition, including God himself. If I hear something that God says about who I am or what I ought to be, I will reject God in pursuit of my own righteousness. And this might sound liberating for some, but it's the exact same instinct that wants to hold on to and take control of my own life because I am owed fulfillment my way. But just like the, the religious counterpart, even this kind of secular, non-religious version cannot satisfy that full longing that we have to be enough. It's an endless cycle of trying to be enough, never feeling like we ever will be. But Christianity says at the heart of the Christian gospel to the individual that the righteousness you seek, the identity you desire, it comes by faith because it's this unmerited gift of grace. That said... Having said all of that, right, 
after Abraham has been made righteous by faith. Some would even say Abraham is the first Christian here in Genesis 15, the first to be made righteous by faith. Even though he experiences this, his struggle still remains to trust the promises of God. Look at verses uh, 7 and 8. So though his faith was credited to, him, credited to him as righteousness, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. Here's, here's the doubt. It still remains. Verse 8, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? How can I know that you are trustworthy? How can I know that you will actually do what you promised? It's a good question. Again, one that might resonate with you. God, what can I point to? God, what can I look at? God, what can I see that will help me trust that you're going to actually accomplish these things, that you'll actually do what you promised? God answers that question. He answered that question for Abram, and he also answers that question for us if we too find ourselves in that same place of doubt. And we see how God answers by also seeing that the story of Abram in Genesis 15 is not just a story of doubt. It's not just a story of faith. It's also a story of covenant. Finally, let me show you what I mean. Uh, this is the part of the story that is truly remarkable. Okay? Verses 9 through 19 of our passage essentially is where God lays out the covenant promise between himself and between Abraham. A covenant, as you uh, may or may not know, it's a lot like how we think about a contract. Uh, it's an agreement, a commitment between two parties that will, uh, each of which both parties are making promises to each other about certain things. And the reality, of course, would be if we don't hold up to those promises, there will be certain consequences. So uh, as an example, in our more writing-based culture, think about the way that we draft lease agreements in our culture. Obviously, uh, the in a lease agreement, the owner of the building promises to allow you to use their property and that they will maintain that property for you in exchange for your monthly payment. Now, of course, we know that there are consequences if the landlord does not keep the building up, and there are also consequences if you, the tenant, do not pay your monthly payment. Right? The consequence is going to be you're going to see each other in court at some point. Now, in ancient times, which was a more oral-based culture, when a covenant contract was established, the two parties didn't write down the terms of the agreement. Instead, they would act out the terms of the agreement. And so one would act out what would take place if they failed to meet their end of the bargain. All right, and here's where I'm going to start drawing on, on Tim a little bit. So Tim draws the analogy out uh, from Jeremiah 34. Uh, there, God says this in Jeremiah 34. He says, you have not obeyed me. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms they made, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two and then walk between the pieces. I will hand them over to their enemies and their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. What is happening there? Right? So one of the, the ways that uh, the um, covenant would be established is that those stepping into the covenant would take animals and they would cut those animals in half, 
They would lay them down, and they would walk through those pieces of animals. It was a way of saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, let this happen to me. If I don't come through, I will become like these animals, cut into pieces, right? It's a heavy way to set up a contract. But then also an important thing to note, another consideration, is to consider how two non-equals entered into covenants. Uh, For example, a common practice would be a covenant between uh, a supreme king or an emperor and a lesser king. It was common in in those days for emperors to come and conquer smaller nations. Uh, And as a way of governing those conquered smaller territories, uh, this greater king would often leave in power a lesser uh, king, a vassal king, much like a, a local governor. But in that kind of covenant that would be made between the supreme king and this lesser king, what would happen in these similar kinds of situations is that the supreme king would make the lesser king walk through these dead animals as a way of making promises to him. But what's interesting is that the supreme king would not do the same. The supreme king would not require himself to walk through. I mean, why would the more powerful king this emperor, commit himself to such things. Instead, he simply made the lesser king do so. He would make the lesser king say, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, great king, may I be like these pieces of torn up animal if I'm not faithful to you. The the greater king had no obligation to do the same. Now, with all of that in mind, look at verse 9 and 10. It says this, So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drew them away. Pause there for a second. So Abram knowing how a covenant between a supreme king and a lesser king works, would have certainly assumed that he was about to walk through these pieces that he had just laid out. It would make complete sense to him. But that is not what happens at all. What happens next is what makes this passage mind-blowing. After Abram has laid out these animals, look at verse 12. It says that he fell asleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. In other words, something heavy and fearful is about to begin. And then skip ahead to verse 17. God speaks, and in verse 17, something paradigm-shifting occurs. It says this, that when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking pot with a blazing torch appeared. Let me pause there for a second. Those two words that are there uh, in, um, in our passage, smoking pot and blazing torch, are actually difficult words for, for biblical translators to translate. If you were to go and read the various uh, English translations, every single one of them is going to describe them differently. And the reason why they're so hard to translate is because those two words are the exact same words that are often used when God descends, when God appears. And you see these two words when God ascends, or descends rather at Mount Sinai. These words are describing the scene when God himself shows up 
physically. And whenever God shows up physically in this way, it's always a terrifying scene. You see this all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, fire and smoke. And in this passage, what do we see that the fire and the smoke do? Let's continue on with our passage. It says this, that when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking pot and blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. That fire, that smoke, God himself showed up and walked through the pieces. Tim, again, reflecting on what's going on here, God going through the pieces, this is what Tim says about it. Abraham, this is God speaking through this action, saying, God, or Abraham, if I don't bless you, may my immortality become mortal. May my immutability become mutable. May the impossible become possible. If I don't uphold my end of the bargain, Abraham, may I die. May I be cut off. May I become like these animals. But that's not all. After God takes this oath by walking through these animals himself, it goes on to say, verse 17 and 18, that when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, the smoking pot and the blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Then in verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. That's it. The covenant's established. Did you catch what did not happen in that passage? We saw that God walked through the pieces, but he never requires Abraham to do the same. I mean, this is God saying, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain to bless you, I will pay the penalty. But also, if you are not faithful to this covenant, if you are not faithful to me, I will pay the penalty of your unfaithfulness as well. That, my friends, is the gospel to the individual who comes by faith. This is what it means to trust in the work of Jesus. If you fast forward thousands of years, Mark 15, describing Jesus's death on the cross. Mark puts it this way, that at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land. Right, so when Jesus went to the cross, that darkness and that dread that came down when it came down with Abraham comes again. And then in Isaiah 53, where the prophet Isaiah is, is thinking about and reflecting on this coming Messiah, the suffering servant, Isaiah puts it this way, that he was cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? Well, it's hearkening back to this moment in Genesis 15. God in Christ is taking upon himself the consequence of our unfaithfulness, not his unfaithfulness, our unfaithfulness. Galatians 3 talks about how Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ. God, the one who walked through the animal pieces in Genesis 15, comes in Jesus and on the cross is torn in two for you and for me, not because of his lack of faithfulness, but because of ours. So why does that matter? Especially as relating to the, the doubt that might come. If you needed a reminder about why you can trust that God is for your good, if you needed a reminder about why we should obey him, why we should follow him, why we can trust him, it's because he's made a covenant with us, 
a covenant where he himself takes upon himself the burden, the consequence of our unfaithfulness. It's Jesus who is the reason why we can know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. This is the gospel, friends. On this Sunday, this Pentecost Sunday, as Pastor Abe mentioned, it's, it's the day that we uh, remember the sending of the Spirit. And what I find to be fascinating is that fire imagery. We see that fire imagery, of course, in Acts 2. We remember that fire as coming uh, to, uh, to uh, the disciples in Acts 2. But that fire also reminds me of this passage, the very presence of God is the Spirit of God with us. And what I find beautiful and amazing and profoundly life-changing is that this fire that walked through those pieces, that fire that came down in Acts 2, that fire exists within us. If you are a follower of Jesus, the presence of God resides within us, empowering us to trust this work of Jesus and to live in response to what he has done. So my encouragement would be, no matter where we might be in our relationship to the Lord, to Jesus, that we would be able to take a moment and look upon him, the one who was torn apart for our sake, to look upon him as the reason why God can be trusted. I hope and pray that, of course, that leads us to a greater affection and love for him, but that it also leads us to a greater and deeper obedience to him as he leads us and calls us to follow him in this life. Let's pray together. Father, um, we thank you, Lord, for what you have done through the work of Jesus. You have come once again, and you have reminded us the extent to which you are committed to the covenants that you have made with your people. So often we are like Abraham, so often we are a mixed bag of some good, but also a lot of not good, a lot of unrighteousness, unable, incapable of being righteous enough to merit your favor. And yet, like Abraham, you credit us, you credit our faith as righteousness as we trust in your work through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you Jesus, on the cross, took the consequence of not your unfaithfulness, but of ours as a reminder that we can truly trust you. And so would that lead us to a greater love? But as a result of the spirit that resides within us, also lead us to a greater obedience on this journey that we're on. Lead us to trust you and obey you all the more. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.